0: Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissing. And this is the show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people.
1: Our brilliant and fantastic guest today is the Regis Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology, Nigel Bigger. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks very much. It's so great to have you. We're here at Oxford University. It's a pleasure to be here and speaking with you, which is, of course, where you, you work. Um, before we get into a very interesting uh, background and story, just tell everybody a little bit about who are you, how are you, where you are, what has been your journey through life that leads you to this very strange place sitting in this chair on YouTube?
2: Okay, well, I wasn't born in Oxford. I, I was born in Scotland. Uh, but My Scottish accent got drained from me when I came south to school at the age of 13. Except when I'm when I'm uh, slightly drunk, or <laughs> when I'm in the pulpit, I can get quite Scottish. <laughs> uh, otherwise, otherwise not. So I, I've I've um, developed an academic career. I've I spent about seven years in Canada and the States. Uh, collected my wife there, brought her back uh, about thirty <laughs> years ago, and have taught here in Oxford, in Leeds, in Dublin, and then for the last eleven years have uh, taught back here in Oxford. And my, my field, I, I have this uh, rather bizarre title, Professor of Moral and Pastoral Theology. What's that? Uh, basically, it's ethics. Mm. Mm. But it's, it's ethics done from a, a religious Christian point of view. Um, so I, I teach that, and I do, I've done research on, and I've written on things like the ethics of, of the euthanasia, um, published a book on the ethics of war. Uh, uh, I also do peace. I've done done stuff on um, making peace and doing justice after civil conflict, Northern Ireland, South Africa, Um, and just about to uh, bring out a book
1: on on rights. Mm -hmm. So it's fair to say in summary that you've had a distinguished academic career, but I think... People who will be aware of you, us included, first became aware of you in November 2017. Um, when. <laughs> <laughs> that laugh
2: is exactly. G- I remember that. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm sure you do. Seared into the memory, no doubt. When you wrote a piece uh, for the Times, which was entitled, Don't Feel Guilty About Our Colonial Past, which was a defense of your colleague, Bruce Gilly, uh, who'd written something about, you know, the empire and colonialism not being all Bad. Yeah. So, tell us briefly about that and what happened and how that went.
2: Okay. So, um, you, you've described the article appeared in the Times in late November 2017. And, and by the way, um, as you'll know, when people write for newspapers, um, they don't have control over the of the title. Yes. Uh, mm. What I said in my article was: We Brits we have reason uh, for pride as well as shame over the imperial past. So, our imperial past is mixed. There were awful things, and there were some great things. Uh, all I was saying was both, which is a pretty I, I thought was a pretty <laughs> unobjectionable, moderate position that no one really could disagree with. Um, more fool me. Um, um, so the, the title was a bit misrepresentative, but that was published in, in late November. Um, and then about a week uh, about a week later, um, I got round after six months uh, delay. Uh, publishing online uh, a description of a research project uh, that I had launched in July of 2017 called Ethics and Empire. And this brings together a group of um, ethicists and historians to, to survey empire from ancient China to the modern period and consider the ways in which contemporaries thought about the empires they lived in in moral terms. I mean, how did they see things uh, uh, morally? Um, But I finally got round to publishing a a description of that online. And then a few days after that, second week of December, uh, my wife and I were in uh, the fancy lounge at Heathrow Airport. We were going off to uh, celebrate our wedding anniversary in Nuremberg. (laughs) <laughs> Not everyone's choice.
0: <laughs> choice. Credit <laughs>
2: doesn't help the <laughs> ending <story. laughs> I, know, I know. I like history. She likes Christmas markets. Um, and, uh, you know, as you do, I just had to check my email one last time before getting, getting in the plane. And there was a, uh, an email from the uh, public relations people here in Oxford uh, informing me that um, uh, a group of students calling themselves Common Ground had published an online uh, denunciation of my ethics and empire project. Um, so that, that I've never experienced that before, but that 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 was uh, told me. And uh, the good news was that the the university uh, um, said that it was entirely behind my right to run such a thing. So I didn't think any more of it. Um, uh, but uh, that was on a Thursday um, on. On the Sunday, I got news from my main historical collaborator that he was he was resigning from the project and in the next uh, four days there were two more uh, online um, de- denunciations, these last two by academics uh, of of this project that I was running. Uh, so that all of that together in that week was was a bit of a shock and I, I you know, um, I'd really not been expecting it at all c- clearly. Looking back, I was naive. Um,
1: um, Is this sort of thing, just to interrupt very briefly, is this sort of thing standard practice in academia where people take exception to a particular topic of research and then there's a student campaign and then academics resign and withdraw from participation? Is that normal or is this (laughs) this unusual?
2: That's a good question. It wasn't normal. Um, I mean, I'd never experienced it before. Um, But I think it's become much more normal. Uh, Certainly, I've... we're all aware of cases in the last uh, three or four years where that's happened to people. Um, and, of, co- of course, social media enables that kind of thing. Uh, it enables an individual to write a protest and then send it round to all their mates all over the world. And within a matter of hours, you may have collected several hundred signatures, which looks really powerful. Um, um, I mean, in in... In the, months, in the weeks and months that I, I spent t- trying to come to terms with, with what was going on, uh, I did come to the view that this was not an appropriate way for academic colleagues to behave um, because uh, when I complained about these online denunciations from, in one case, 58 Oxford colleagues and in, in, the, th- in the third... Um, um, protest. There were, I think, about 200 academics worldwide. Um, I mean, they said, oh, we were simply uh, um, trying to stimulate a conversation. (laughs) I said, well, (laughs) you know, if you you want a conversation, I mean, some of the people who signed these letters, uh, two of them work across the road from me. They know my door is. In fact, two of them were in the same college as me, in this college. They know my door is. They could have come and spoken to me They didn't, and they haven't since. Um, And so so the notion this was a kind of invitation to conversation uh, is complete baloney. Um, I can only interpret it as, of course, it's an aggressive thing to do, um, but it it was designed um, perhaps to intimidate me or uh, also to persuade university authorities Uh, to um, act against me in some way by pulling funding or um, some other kind of of sanction. Um,
0: And and why do you think this is happening more and more, that we have this emboldened minority who feel that they have the right, not to criticise, because it is absolutely their right to criticise your work or your views or whatever else it may be, but they feel that they have the right to cancel something?
2: That's a really good question, and I I continue to puzzle over it. um, I mean, pe- people have always had strong political opinions, and within universities, you know, there have been people on on the far left and the further right, that's always been the case. Um, I, I, I can only speculate that, um, the kind of people who think they have that right, um, are people who have spent a long time talking to people of their own kind. And so it, it really appears to them as if there is only one view of these things. Um, so that's one possibility. The, the, other, the, other, the other possibility is that um, not only do they, are they convinced that a certain view of the world is, is right, and, and they have it, um, but that the, the contrary view of the world is absolutely unacceptable. Uh, it, uh, I mean, I, uh, um, um, the, word, the word fascist is thrown out all over the place. If you, if you, if you utter a, um, a conservative or a right-wing opinion, you're a fascist. Um, so immediately you're pushed into the extreme. Um, so so it's, not, it's not just, as it were, people operating in a kind of intellectual bubble where they, they, they never really hear a contradiction and they're constantly confirming what, 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 what they and their, their mates think. It's also that that there's a tendency somehow to demonise the opposition uh, in ways that um, quite how they come to that view I just don't understand. Although although to be honest, I mean I I see a lot of it in the pages of the Guardian now. I mean I I I, I, surely not? (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, it didn't used to be that way. I mean, there was a time I will confess when I think in the 90s the, the Guardian was the only paper I read. Um, uh, but it's, it's become more and more, um, um, fixated with, a, with identity politics. And, um, that kind of politics doesn't seem to, it's not into compromise. Um, and, uh, it, it does tend to demonize, uh, the opposition in, in ways that the left hasn't always done. And, uh, um, I don't quite understand w- why that's the case. I mean, uh, it, let's be clear. Uh, in the past, um, the far right has done that. Mm-hmm. We, we all know that from from uh, 20th century history, uh, from real fascism in France and Germany and Italy. Um, but it's 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 not... That kind of um, othering and demonization um, does at the moment seem to come from certain parts of the left.
0: And it's... It's very interesting that you say that. And we were talking about academia, what happened to you. Do you think there's a problem with free speech on campus?
2: Uh, Yes, I do. Um, um, The left will disagree. Um, Again, if you read The Guardian, you you will find a number of people in recent years saying uh, a concern about freedom of speech is is really um, a fabrication uh, uh, by people like me, male, white, elderly, uh, who are alarmed at having our, our accustomed authority drained away from us, um, so no one listens to us, and so we're upset, and so we complain about our freedom of speech being suppressed. Um, and that is just not true. Um, and I know it uh, partly from my own direct experience, um, and partly uh, through recent um, uh, social scientific surveys, uh, one published a couple of weeks ago but just in terms of my own experience I mean i I'm coming to toward the end of my career I'm in a, a prestigious position. It's quite hard to get to me um, at least that's clear now it wasn't clear to me in December two thousand seventeen uh, but i'm I'm secure um, so
1: did you think at the time that you were likely to lose your job?
2: I had no idea uh, but but I, I lost night's sleep over it hmm. yeah just but partly because. Um yes because at least initially I felt alone um um one of my oldest friends uh, whom I still respect and love uh, uh actually told me to abandon my project straight away because he said it's just too toxic toxic um and then uh the fact that my my senior A collaborator in the project resigned within four days, uh, um, giving an implausible explanation for his abrupt resignation. Um, And then, um, um, yes, from from, from colleagues here, on the whole, silence. So you do, you know. I did begin to wonder: you know, am I crazy? Am I daft? Um, And although the university had indicated from the beginning that it would um, uh, back me up. Um, Yes, I I guess I I did feel quite vulnerable and not quite sure where this was going to go. Um,
1: Fortunately, you you survived, let's say. Yeah, yeah. yeah, Uh, But your concern is that you you are in a prestigious position, as you say, coming towards the end of your career. A younger colleague...
2: Yeah, absolutely. So that's, so that, that's, that's the concern. Um, and I have plenty of experience of, of younger colleagues who um, are conservative in, in their views, who have said to me, you know, really pleased that you are saying what you're saying, Nigel. Um, uh, I just couldn't dare to say it myself. And I, I've actually said to them, oh, in fact, they've said, you know, I feel guilty that I'm not saying the same thing, and I said to them, well, you, nor, nor should you at this point. You need to wait until you get tenure, and then then you can start to say what you think when you're secure, but right now, you need to play the long game. Um, but there, there, there was one, one, um, one instance of, of a, a very junior academic, a junior research fellow who's, who's an academic who hasn't got a permanent job yet. Mm. He's got the, he had, the, he had his PhD, He's got a kind of three-year research post, and then has to look for a permanent job. So it's quite insecure. Uh, and in uh, in May two thousand eighteen,
1: you you're mean, talking about Noah no, Carl. No, yeah. uh-huh.
2: no, 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 no. This guy must remain, remain nameless for reasons that uh- will come clear. In the world. <laughs> um, no, uh, this this was uh, uh, this was an a, a historian, and I, I uh, you mentioned Bruce Gilley, who published this. A uh, uh, provocative, but in my view, uh, intelligent article called "The Case for Colonialism." Um, I had uh, Gilly come here in May, 2018, and we held in this room a small conference with um, uh, some historians: uh, Paul Collier, the development economist; uh, Tutenka Roy, the, um, the um, historian of colonial economics in, his, in, in India. And others, uh, because I, I, I wanted to, to generate a, a kind of intelligent, um, um, reflective discussion about what Gilly was saying about colonialism. But because I didn't want to invite um, um, heckling, um, and also because, frankly, small gatherings are much better in terms of conversation than large ones and we can only fit 30 people in this room. I didn't advertise it, I just invited people I thought would be good to have part of the conversation. And one of them was this young uh, junior research fellow, whom I, 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 we'd had a a clandestine conversation
0: uh,
2: um, in a distant part of the university where he he revealed that he actually liked what I had to say. Um, I kid you not, we actually had to find a place where he didn't think he'd be recognized. and he said, yes, I'd love to come, <laughs> but on but two conditions. Um, my name must not appear in the list of participants. And if you're taking photographs, my face must, must not appear. Because, he said, um, I, I work in the same office as two senior colleagues, uh, two of whom signed one of the letters against you. If they find out that um, I've been associated with you, I fear for my, my career.
0: But, but Nigel, don't you find that rather ridiculous that somebody can have right-of-center opinions, or even opinions on the right, and all of a sudden their career, that you know, is curtailed, stunted, fired, no, well, all the rest of it? I mean, isn't that's pathetic, isn't it? That's pathetic,
2: and it's alarming because uh, you know this is this is Oxford. Mm. <laughs> mm. Um,
0: not Oxford bricks. We hasten <laughs> to add, yes, Absolutely. Oxford. I did, yes, yes. <laughs> but
1: just to make that point, perhaps for yeah. people who haven't been to Oxford, who haven't been in the in the in this place, it yeah. is you know Francis lives in London. I live just outside. Coming here, there there is a sense of history to this place. There is a sense yeah. that this is one of the great places of learning in human history. Yeah. And as you walk around in these buildings, in these halls, that feeling that this is a place of learning is very strong here, yes. and to hear that sort of attitude being spread in in this place is alarming at a very different level than if it was happening at Oxford. Brookes. Do you know what I mean? Yeah.
2: yeah. Well, I, I I don't want to say anything about Oxford. <laughs> 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 you said you said that, not me. Yeah. Um, but yes, I mean Oxford and Cambridge are, according to, to to world rankings, regularly in the top ten in the world. Mm. So this is, this is a serious research university as you say, Constantine, it has a long history of, uh, uh serious, um, p- perhaps not terribly exciting, but serious scholarship, mm-hmm. uh, careful, fastidious, um, yeah, so, so the, the, fact that, um, a colleague here fears for his career because, um, he might be known to be associated with such as me is, uh, really alarming, actually, um, um, now, l- let me be clear. I, I'm not saying uh, that um, political censorship in Oxford is widespread. I have no idea. Um, I'm sure that many colleagues don't, uh, don't censor, um, uh, um, don't apply political criteria when they're making appointments or when they're writing references for, for junior scholars. I'm sure many don't do that. Um, so it may only be a minority uh, who are so politically convinced of their own views that they will penalize uh, a colleague, a junior colleague, a vulnerable junior colleague, uh, by um, writing them a poor reference because of his political views. But um, here's the thing. Uh, Even if it's only 1 in 10 or even 1 in 20, uh, if you know some people do that, the effect on the general, once that becomes known, the effect on the general atmosphere is to make everyone look over their shoulders and just wonder, who's listening to me? What will the effect be? Um, And that's really bad news. Really bad news.
0: Um, And Nigel, don't you think it's an abdication of responsibility on behalf of the universities? Because they should absolutely crack down on this type of behaviour and say that it is not acceptable.
2: Uh, yeah, I do. I do. Um, so here's what. Here's one point. Uh, in this university, our vice chancellor Louise Louis Richardson has been uh, uh, consistent um, in affirming free speech within universities and its importance. And, and that's really that is important because uh, the leader of an institution does set the tone, and that just reminds people that this is an important value. But what that doesn't do is change the behavior of my junior colleagues, uh, senior colleagues in their office. Uh, It doesn't change the, as it were, um, um, undercover operation of political criteria. Um, And so um, something does need to be done about that. Now, what could universities do about that? Uh, Basically, I think... The university has to recognise that it is a problem, and I've 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 written about this in in the press over the last three years. There's a, an in-house uh, magazine called the Oxford Magazine, and I published an article on this point uh, in early 2018. Uh, and the article ended: um, diversity is good, political diversity is good too, isn't it? Um, Since since then, certainly in response to that article and in general conversation, I've heard no one talk about it. So (laughs) some people know about it. Some people read about it. No one talks about it. Um, uh, But I I think we do need to talk about it. Now, it's difficult to talk about um, because we we, we all have political views. And and that's not the issue, of course. The the issue is being aware of when uh, you are uh, unfairly applying political political criteria to appointments or admissions or whatever. So in the same way that we we all now need to be uh, careful, if we weren't careful before, to make sure that prejudices about social class or race don't influence unfairly the judgments we make. And that's utterly, that's entirely acceptable and important. Uh, We now need to do the same with with political views. Uh, And at the moment... That's just not an issue that has risen up the agenda. And I think uh, university leaders need to start doing that. Um, I mean, maybe the government could prod them. Maybe the Office for Students can start uh, rattling their cages and saying, folks, you need to take this seriously. And that, I think that may happen. Um, but it'd be good to see universities take the initiative rather than being pushed by government.
0: When we interviewed uh, Douglas Murray for our first interview, he was of the opinion that if a university did not support free speech on campus, that uh, they should be defunded, which is quite an extreme position, I think. Would you be in agreement with, you know, the government taking a stronger hand and actually saying to universities, if you don't do your job in supporting different viewpoints, then there are going to be some sanctions put in place?
2: Yes, I do. I I, I think... um, um, Government does need to remind universities of their commitment to academic freedom. Most universities have formal commitments to free speech. Uh, Although there's a a distinction here. It's one thing to guarantee free speech. Academic freedom is slightly different because it has to do with what professors can teach in their classes, what books they can assign to their students, what research they do. And I, I think free speech is better protected than academic freedom. Mm. So academic freedom also needs to be protected. Um, and I think, I think government should, should um, communicate to university leaders that it regards this matter as, as a really serious one. Um, if, if I can just, I want to come back to that point, and I might lose it, so bring me back in a moment. But just on that, I think there's a really important point to be made about what's at issue, what's at stake here, Um, to some extent what's at stake is is, um, the right of minorities in this case political minorities and and conservatives are reckoned to be I don't know about 15% of the university professoriate um, the right of political minorities to be able to speak freely without fear of sanction and that's important but what's at stake is even more important uh, um, um, is, is this uh, in universities uh, we are um, forming future citizens We're, we are our, our graduates with their particularly in this university with their prestigious university degree will go on to run companies run the BBC become journalists become editors and we are we are training them in ways of dealing with points of view they really don't like and um, um, uh, how to handle uh, a, a debate or a discussion or a controversy uh, on matters that, that get people very excited, and and you can train them well. Or, we can train them well or badly. Uh, we can train them only to to see one point of view. We can train them to uh, instead of treating what an alternative point of view has to say, and considering what reasons it might have, you can train them instead to say, well, because he's a conservative, because he's a capitalist, because he speaks up for empire, um, it's only because he's trying to um, protect his own economic interests, Mm -hmm. or his social status, whatever, so don't take what he says seriously, uh, just try and um, undermine um, the kind of, the the moral integrity of, of his position. Now you can do that, uh, but, but that but when, the, when those graduates go out in, in, into uh, the professions, in, into institutions, into public, into the media, uh, if they stay, start behaving that way, the whole of public discourse is going to be infected by polarisation, aggression, uh, a refusal to hear, um, and that's just one step away from bloodshed. Because w- when people uh, are no longer trying to argue, they're fighting and uh, um, uh, Fierce verbal fighting is only a step away from the real stuff So what's at stake really is not just the protection of minority opinions. It, it's really the public good of a citizenry who um, Know how to restrain themselves when they hear things they don't, they don't like um, uh, Feel obliged to do justice to what other people say so when someone says something you don't like you. You don't then distort it before you address it. You take it as it stands, uh, um, um, and then to give to, 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 to give credit where credit is due, and then then to come up with the reasons you think this is bloody wrong. Mm. Now that's that's a responsible, rational way to, to conduct the many, many, many um, um, controversies over issues we all get excited about, and we need citizens and journalists, and editors, and um, institutional leaders who know how to do that and model it, because uh, otherwise the whole of public life is, is is going to become much more fractious, polarized, as we see it has done in the USA.
1: Well, and increasingly here too, and I think it's fair time. to say. And I think you make that point very well, Nigel. But speaking about some of the issues on which it's very difficult to have these conversations now, it's the one we started with, which is, of course, empire and colonialism—that is something that has become very heated. The conversation around that has become uh, with a very particular world view. Let's say, uh, are people wrong to to be so uh, critical of the of the our imperial history? I mean, some terrible things were done during imperial times. Uh, you know, whether it's the invention of concentration camps during the Boer War by the British, or many many other atrocities on the Indian subcontinent. And around the world should we not be ashamed of our history
2: Uh, my view as a as a someone who identifies himself strongly as british i care about this country uh, i identify with its history um and my view is if you if you love something you are therefore capable of shame Uh, and looking back at my british history yes there are things i'm deeply ashamed about Uh, and the, the classic case would be slavery which we we engaged in for 200 years so um, uh, as I said at the beginning, um, pride as well as shame, right? So certainly shame. But my view is that, that uh, the British Empire, in that respect, uh, containing moments of awfulness, as well as moments of greatness, is no different from any nation-state. And no different from any other empire. Um, any nation-state that's been around for a long time, in, in the course of time, We'll get to do some awful things.
1: Well, the Mongols committed some seriously big microaggressions <laughs> at the Genghis Khan, didn't they? Uh, but do, do you think perhaps Britain, no, as someone, I'm not British, so while I feel... Uh, well, I say I'm not British. I think at this point I sort of am. No,
0: you're not. No, you know. <laughs> uh,
1: <laughs> not. You know. uh, but you know what I mean. I come from a different place, but I'm—I've integrated into this country. But I, I probably feel less of an affinity with British history uh, than than you than you would. Uh, do you think that Britain is essentially being punished for its historical success? Because if it had been less successful, if it had been a Sweden or a Norway or whatever, uh, that engaged in some of these things on a much smaller scale or not at all, uh, simply by virtue of not being a powerful player in the world stage, then we wouldn't be having this conversation.
2: Now, you're you're exactly right. So you would have noticed that uh, no one is interested in in beating up uh, the French Empire or the Russian or the Chinese or the Zulu or the Comanche Empire in the States. Um, They're interested mainly in the British Empire. Why is that? Um, It's because the the British Empire, um, even as it declined, uh, it morphed into the American Empire, or at least it morphed into American global power. And um, the the British Empire was supportive of a a lot of the uh, post-Second World War, post-1945 International institutions. So the kind of international order we have, the kind of international order against which uh, China is presently chafing, and Russia, uh, that liberal international order, um, uh, owes it owes a lot to the British Empire and and, and subsequent uh, American power. So you're absolutely right. The reason that the British Empire is, g- is getting beaten up on is not the, it's not about the past at all. It's about the present. It's about um, um, hostility toward Anglo-American liberal capitalism. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and that, that, that's, that's why uh, my, my interest in, in British Empire is not primarily antiquarian. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's not really about the past, except insofar as uh, what we think about the past uh, shapes how we think about ourselves now, and it shapes the decision we make in the future. So, uh, one of the um, things that stimulated me to get stuck into British Empire um, is Scottish nationalism. Now, I'm, as I said, I'm Scottish-born. My mother's English. I'm an anglo scot I'm a Brit. I belong to a multi a multinational state, um, and I really value that. Um, and so, I'm. I'm I, I am uh, uh, um, strongly against Scottish separation. But there is, there is a story being told by uh, some Scottish nationalists, which is, if I can distill it, uh, Britain equals empire equals evil. And therefore, to, to break up Britain, to separate Scotland from the rest of the UK, is an act of, of uh, national uh, self-purification. <laughs> yeah. Now, you know if if, if Britain, you know, if if Britain equaled Nazism, equal evil, separation, I quite a good idea. Mm. But, but I, I happen to know enough about the British Empire to know it, it just wasn't of that kind at all. Um, and um, um, I don't think that, that the British Empire was uh, radically, at its heart, at its root, racist. I don't think it was radically, at its heart, exploitative. Um, it included moments of racism and moments of exploitation. Um, but when you... Uh, we were talking earlier about about what school kids do and don't know about slavery, and you were saying that, you know, in your experience as a, as a teacher, <laughs> school kids do know about slavery. I suspect they probably know less about the... Uh, more than a century that the British spent suppressing slavery... Um, Um, the slave trade across the Atlantic, the slave trade across the Indian Ocean, in Africa, in India, in the Middle East, um, for about, well, from 1807 onwards until the end of the empire, one of the main preoccupations of the empire was the suppression of slavery. And I think that's wonderful. How how many kids know about that? Francis, let
1: me me just follow up on one thing, if you don't mind. This is a really interesting point you made about that it's about the present, not about the past. So, And if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is there is an agenda to undermine the American liberal capitalism of the world that dominates the world. It's anti-West. Anti-West. Agreed completely. Certainly, I see that. And the British Empire is like the founding cornerstone of that. So if you can pull that out, you can make the whole pyramid fall.
2: Yeah, and so what you do is you, you, you undermine... By undermining the record, the historical record you undermine, as it were, the moral authority of the whole thing.
0: Yeah. Go ahead, Francis. And the the question I wanted to ask was, we do learn about the British Empire at schools, but we don't learn about other empires. Uh So is it part of the problem, the fact they see British Empire, they see slavery, without realising that, Essentially, if you wanted anything done in history, you needed slaves. <laughs> <laughs> we're just going to clip that and put it out as the slogan of trigonometry. Yes. If you want anything done, you need an Anton. That's what you need.
2: I <laughs> think you think to in the past. Yes, you know, yeah, in you, the you, past. You're not recommending this.
0: I mean, well, you see, sir, now like you were. <laughs> <say you're gone. laughs> uh,
2: let me save yourself. Save, save myself, um, no, that's absolutely right. So, so, one of the really interesting things that we've discovered in in this Ethics and Empire Project, which, as I said, is looking at empires from ancient China to the modern period. So far, we've got up to about 1,600. And uh, um, when I was asking around uh, uh, colleagues who know about, let's say, Arab empires or Islamic empires, saying, you know, can you find me uh, a contemporary critic? And they said, well, no, not really. (laughs) Um, and it, um, it turns out that, um, and the same happened in the case of ancient Chinese empire. And the conclusion I've drawn is that, um, at those times in those places, uh, empire was a fact of life. Uh, uh, um, you might you might not like particular emperors, you may not like particular governments, the way in which the empire was governed, but empire as such was completely unremarkable. And um, um, the fact is that most of the world has been has been ruled by empires um, um, up until, I mean, even today. Um, uh, uh, China is a kind of empire. Um, certainly, Tibetans would think so. Um, certainly, Hong Kong feels that way right now. Uh, so, it, it, you know, it's still going on. Um, so, empire is a kind of fact of life. And as for, for slavery, yeah, you're right. I mean, everyone... Was, was into slavery. Not all slavery was as, as nasty as what went on in the sugar plantations of the West Indies or the Southern, Amer- Southern American colonies, uh, but some of it was quite nasty. I mean, um, some of those who were carted off, the slaves who were sold by West African kings to European traders and taken off to the, to the Caribbean, uh, had they stayed, they might have had the fate um, of joining several hundred others Upon the death of a king, of being buried alive uh, to join their master on his uh, heavenly journey, uh, there are there, there are reports of uh, up to up to uh, fifteen hundred slaves being sacrificed by being buried alive um, um, to, to to mark the the funerals of um, African princes in seventeen ninety. Um, so you know slavery uh, and long before. Before African kings started selling their uh, their slaves, and the slaves were normally w- would have been uh, prisoners of war uh, um, captured from other tribes. Before they sold them to Europeans, they were selling them to the Arabs for, for centuries. So yeah, I, I mean, th- this doesn't th- th- doesn't um, doesn't excuse uh, the the cruelty of a lot of um, slavery in the West Indies, which the British were involved in. Uh, but it, is, it does put it in context. Uh, so if we sinned, um, there were lots of other, other sinners too, and many of them had black skins.
0: Well, that is a very <laughs> controversial point. But it's but it's absolutely true. And the, and the thing that it seems to me is that what, what we have nowadays are narratives, like you talked about, you know, the British being evil, being, you know, and then certain white supremacy would no doubt be thrown in as well. And if you contravene that narrative, even if you've got facts and, you know, you can make a cogent argument, it doesn't matter. Yeah,
2: yeah, yeah that's, that's really strange. Uh, um, but but I, I've become uh, more confident and more heartened um, the more I've got stuck into these issues, because... Um, you know, when it started, when this, when I first suffered grief in December two thousand seventeen, um, I'd only begun to to work on uh, on making moral sense of British Empire, and I, I've done a lot more reading since. And the thing I'm most struck about is how the people who behave in that way. Um, don't know what they're talking about. They really don't know what they're talking about. And, and there are some academics who behave that way and they just don't know what they're talking about. Um, and my sense is, uh, um, well, it's my hope, uh, but my sense is that the more this kind of behaviour gets exposed and contradicted, the, the great British public out there become more and more appalled. Uh, and that's my hope. Um, and, I, 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 and And... Uh, I also think, and I've certainly seen here how um, really self-persuaded, self-convinced, zealous minorities of students or even of professors uh, can have, can acquire a kind of dominance over a a more uncertain uh, majority who don't particularly want to get involved in this fight. Um, So my sense is out there, and I, even within universities, a majority of people are, are not very impressed by the kind of behaviour you've described. Um, and the more the more people who speak up and out against it, mm-hmm. and the more outrageous this behaviour becomes, I I think there's reason to hope that the the, the stronger a reaction will be. Um, so I'm, I'm not gloomy about this at all.
0: I mean, it's, it's- it's a good point that you made, you know, that you're not gloomy about it, and there seems to be a strong reaction. I think things came to a head a, a great deal during the Black Lives Matter uh, demonstrations, yes. rights, whatever you want to call them, the tearing down of the statues. Where do you stand on that? You have, you know, the famous example is Edward Colston, the yeah. slave trader, and then it got torn down. Do you, do you agree with that, or do you think that we actually should have those statues in a prominent place?
2: Um i I didn't agree with it being torn down that way, so first of all there's an issue of process yes mm. and and for, for a for a mob, however passionate they are to take it upon themselves to pull stuff public stuff down is not acceptable because if if the left can do that, the right can start doing it too folks. Mm. We don't want that so that that was just wrong uh as for Colson himself uh, um my view on statues is is this um I mean, there are some people in history whose record is pretty irredeemable. <laughs> T- to take the obvious examples, Adolf Hitler, Goebbels, Stalin, Paul Pott, you name them, Genghis Khan. Unless I, <laughs> unless my reading of Genghis Khan is a lot <laughs> different from most people's, I guess he wasn't a particularly pleasant guy. Um, but you know, if we've got to those kind of people, um, you know, uh, 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 take them down. Uh, 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 because th- th- there's nothing really positive to be said about them.
1: The residents of Ulaanbaatar are not going to be happy. <laughs> <laughs> They've got a massive statue of Genghis Khan. Do they really? Oh, yeah, yeah absolutely. Okay. It's humongous. Yeah. Okay.
0: They're very, they're
2: well, I can, can, can I just take Genghis Khan off the, off the list? <laughs> <laughs> but,
0: but then surely isn't the counterpoint to this, Nigel, what you've just said. So, for instance, Cromwell we have in front of Parliament. Now I have a few Irish friends, and yeah. they would get very upset at the thought of Cromwell being celebrated.
2: Okay, but uh, no. So, so my point was: at the extremes, you've got these these nasty guys. But for most most other people, are are a mixed bag. Mm. So, yeah, for the Irish, Cromwell means drogheda, means disproportionate slaughter. uh, But that's not why he's in front of parliament. He's in front of parliament because he stood up to um, an absolutist king. uh, And and um, I mean, Cromwell is a complicated character. Uh, but in the kind of uh, liberal figure story, he represents. He, he's standing there because he represents successful opposition to, to uh, unaccountable absolutist monarchy, right? So we got we got rid of that. So that's why he's there. Um, and th- 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 there's another interesting point about um, British public statuary. Um, um, apparently, you, you got you got Cromwell. Outside of the House of Commons, but somewhere else in, in 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 the square, you you've got some I forget who he is now. There's some Irish patriot or someone who stood up for Irish Home Rule in the same square, and you've got Churchill, but then you've got Gandhi, and you've got Link. So you, you, in a sense, the public the, the public structure represents a kind of it's eclectic. It's not a, it's not a one particular point of view. It is plural. It's liberal. It, it, it engenders a kind of Conversation and dialogue across across the public square. And I think that's, that's really healthy because um, most people who did bad things have something good to be said for them. And most good people who did good things have something bad to be said for them. Um, and if we're going to have any statuary at all, we've got to put up with people who, whose records were mixed. And Cromwell was certainly one of those. I just don't think that Adolf's record was quite so mixed <laughs> it's rather <laughs> heavier one side than the other yeah. you know even if we did get the trains to run on time um the problem was the problems where the trains were
1: going <laughs> yes <laughs> well well put but i i think the point you're really making is the tapestry of an individual's history and our human history is never woven just from one Fiber from one color—it's always multifaceted and, and multicolored. And uh, to pretend otherwise is very naive. And I think we're, we're going through a bit of a period where there's a sort of puritanism about everything.
2: Yeah, there is. Uh, um, which I, I find it—I find that. I mean, the, the, the phenomenon of this puritanism really strange. The, the extremity of it. Uh, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a religious person. I'm a, I'm a Christian. You know, so I, I do believe in good and evil. Um, but um, part of my worldview is that um, you know, good and evil—the the, the dividing line isn't here. Mm. I'm good and you are bad. The dividing line is here. It's, it's
1: here. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> there. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so that, that you know, knowing, know, knowing Constantine that you're, you know, you're, you're, you're you, you, you may, you may be wicked, but you not that wicked. And besides, I'm wicked too. It means it, it, that means that even if i dislike what you're saying uh there's a certain kind of self-restraint i i can't bin you or demonize you um and so i find the, ex- the extremism uh, of this um it, it's almost mean i've said this before it's as if the, the 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 social justice warriors the the woke folk you know they, 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 they've got the the uh, um the ire of the biblical prophets, who are railing against various forms of injustice, what they don't have um, is the notion of, of the wickedness that ra- is, is within and requires forgiveness. So it's kind of lopsided biblical religion, and, and the, the certainty of it, the extremity of it, does give it a kind of religious, a kind of scary religious quality that uh, deserves a bit of analysis, actually.
0: But doesn't it also reflect a lack of humility? And the, you know, and the realization that we're all flawed, we're all broken. None of us is perfect, and this desire to find fault, faults with others and you know fling them up on the metaphorical pyre is yeah.
2: Oh, well, for sure. No, the humility is is lacking big time, and the notion is it's not just other people who have to ask for forgiveness. Um, um, and quite quite how we got there, I I do find. Of the puzzling, although uh, I mean, I've read a bit about um, uh, what is it? Is it? I've forgotten the source now. But uh, th- there is this attitude, or th- this view that um, I guess it's a Marxist view uh, that um, points of view, particularly points of view held by bourgeois people. Um, these are these are, these are not to be taken the face value these are just rationalizations for unjust interests and therefore you don't you don't take the idea seriously what you do is you you attack the person and the social standing and that seems to be uh, behind a lot of the attitudes of of um, these uh, zealous um, uncompromising um, new Puritans. Um, the problem is, you know, if you think about it, if you, if you take that view, of course, it applies to yourself too. <laughs> it's not well, why is it just their view that is is rooted in, in illegitimate economic interests? How about your own views? Don't you have interests too that you're rationalising, whatever? Uh, actually, I think in the case of BLM, I think yes, there are interests here. I mean, it's, it, victimhood is a political tool now, it, it, it wins you power. Uh, so there's every, everyone who can has an interest in playing victim, big time, uh, because, um, particularly because of the way in which uh, uh, well-meaning, um, sensitive, liberal people react, which is normally to say, yes, we're guilty. <laughs> uh, it gives you a lot of power. So uh, I think the, 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 the kind of um, Marxist analysis can be turned back, Onto them to say, well, what are the interests that are driving you, so that you simply can't listen? What, why?
0: And and do you see that as a more prevalent attitude amongst uh, the students that you see here?
2: Well, none of my my students, you know, they know who I am and they come to me for a reason. Um, mm. uh, but but I'm I have asked uh, I, I have asked my students about their peers, and yes, the kind of. Uh, the kind of Puritan, extreme, uncompromising attitudes, yes, seem to be quite prevalent among their peers. Um,
1: Nigel, there's one other topic I want to cover before we wrap up, but just on that point. Are we not three crusty old men that are just reminiscing mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. the good? I mean, we're not quite yeah, yeah. Uh, old, but, maybe, but, 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 <laughs> crusty, but crusty enough. Um who are lamenting the loss of our ease with which we could spew our yes. white supremacist beliefs unchecked, yeah. uncontrolled, unquestioned. And now we're, as you pointed out earlier in the interview, we're very upset yeah. about the loss of this former tyrannical oppression and power over yeah. others. Is, are, are we not troubled by the fact that there are some brown faces at Oxford now? Isn't that really what this is all about?
2: Uh, yes, yeah, so, right. So that's, that's what they say. Um, that's what they say. So the answer is no. Um, <laughs> uh, because I, first, speaking for myself, I guess others will have to judge this, but, uh, speaking for myself, I, it's not, it's not criticism that bothers me. It's not contrary views that bothers me. It's not the presence of brown skins that bother me. Um, it is the, um, well, it's 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 it's, it's a refusal to engage rationally with what I say. It's the tendency instead to attack my person. Um, um, and and let's be clear here. Um, uh, you say it might be the case that I'm just bothered by the fact that uh, 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 there are more women and more people of non-white skin who inhabit these. Um, uh, these cloisters, these these uh, these colleges, uh, our universities, might be that. But here's the thing: uh, not every brown person thinks as they do. I mean, there, a, lot, a lot of people in all my Skin to agree with me. So I'm not. In fact, I I couldn't care less what skin colour people have. I really I really couldn't. Uh, uh, all I care about is uh, whether um, they can behave and argue in a civil fashion and a reasonable one in which we respect each other enough to take each other's reasons seriously and by all means show me where I'm wrong. Mm.
1: Mm. Um, You're talking about good faith conversation. Yeah, I'm I talking about good faith yeah.
0: conversation. Um, <laughs> you should go on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I have, I have. It's, it's, not,
2: it's, not, good for co- it's not good for conversation. I admit. No,
1: oddly, <laughs> oddly enough. Uh, yes. But Nigel, you, you brought up a point which I think is fundamental to the current cultural moment. It's something I've been thinking about for some time, and it's been worrying me for some time. And what, what I'm talking about is the fact that all of these things that we are alluding to and talking about throughout this interview are fundamentally anti-West. It's about the tearing down of the liberal, the kind of the traditional world order, the capitalist liberal in, the, in, our, in our time, American world order, why, why do we feel this way about ourselves? Why do we have to uh, remove as or think about removing uh, Rule Britannia from the last night of the Proms? Why, why have we come to this point where a healthy self-criticism has has turned into a sort of self-loathing? Uh,
2: another excellent question, which, which um, needs a lot of thinking about. Um, So so here's here's one answer to to that question. Um, And it goes back to something I said earlier. Um, uh, A a lot of those who feel instinctively embarrassed about Britain's past don't know very much about it. Right? Um, What they do know is, and they've learnt this from other people, they know that Talking about empire, talking up empire doesn't win you friends. Uh, um, um, So, so, so they they they've picked up the the notion that to 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 talk positively about empire, about colonialism, is as as my my very old friend said, toxic. Mm. And unless you want to fight, unless you want to risk losing friends and colleagues. Uh, you won't do it. Therefore, uh, the impression that empire equals evil becomes more and more embedded because no one contradicts it and everyone repeats it. So it's, it's kind of self-confirming and it kind of g- gains a momentum. So it, beca- it becomes like common sense. And so when people like me start to say, well, no, not just shame, also pride, people are shocked. Um, because it's almost as if you said something really rude. Um, so I think it's, it's partly that, uh, over time, um, a common sense about empire and colonialism has grown up among us, uh, that is not all wrong, but in, in significant parts, it is wrong. It is, it's just incorrect. It's not historically true. Um, and so, but, but I, I think, you know, we are seeing, certainly over over the prom's decision to uh, um, take the words out of Land of Hope and Glory and Rule Britannia, uh, we're seeing you know, quite a strong popular reaction. I mean, that may have made sense to BBC people talking to to um, um, musicians from Finland. <laughs> um, it doesn't make so much sense to, uh, uh, well, I'm, I'm guessing here, but judging by the Times newspaper and the Telegraph, and I imagine the sun isn't terribly happy about it, uh, to, to most British people, that this just doesn't make sense. So, so um, you know, when you talk, when you talk about how, how how did we get to this position? Well, who are we here? Uh, and I, I think we are talking about the elite, mm. uh, people who run our institutions, people educated in universities in this place. Um, uh, but we are, you know, as with as over Brexit, we're discovering that what the elite assumes and what the rest of the population thinks. And not the same thing um, so again I'm quite hopeful that that um, you know the BBC has suddenly discovered that not everyone is happy with this policy and it's it's offered some explanations that uh, I think don't make much good sense and I think it's true that the BBC caved in to uh, the um, uh, the movement to decolonize um, and now it's having to think again because people have spoken up uh, um so, so it, it, it's to be hoped that um, we, in the elite, I'm part of it, um, having been confronted with contrary views, will start to think again. Um, and I'll certainly do my part to help that happen.
0: Fantastic.
1: We've got time for one last question <laughs> as always.
0: <laughs> yeah, and the question that we always end with is, what is the one thing that we're not talking about, but we really should be?
2: That's a very good question. I'm so glad you warned, warned me about it at the beginning so I had time.
0: Don't give away the
1: secrets <laughs> of the show, Nigel. You Aww. could have got so much more credit if you just yeah. pretended that your no doubt forthcoming Aww. brilliant answer came to you just in the moment. Well, I said
2: yeah. you, you edit this without. Fantastic, yeah. that's um, what we'll do. Yeah. Okay, so
1: yeah. we're all about authenticity here. Yeah. Too it, yeah.
2: I, um, straight away, I would have said, and I will say, virtue is what we don't talk about. Um So we talk a lot about rights. We know all about rights, claiming my rights. We don't talk about virtue. And I, I've talked about it in answer to, to your questions. Because uh, I, I, you know, I talked about the importance of universities forming students so that they can uh, manage a discussion of controversial topics in a civil fashion so they can do justice to what other people are saying Doing justice is a virtue, it's a habit, you do or you don't. I could have also said uh, um, treating alien points of view with charity, meaning, you know, if you hear someone saying something you don't like, well, an easy thing to do is to caricature it and knock it down. Uh, um, A more courageous, generous, charitable thing to do is, okay, give it its best construction. Now, what's the best thing that can be said in favor of this ridiculous point of view? Then take it down. Um, that means two things. It means, first of all, you've been generous to the other side, and they might actually listen to what you've got to say, because you've been generous. The other thing is that uh, when you take it down, it's all the stronger, because you have taken its best construction and taken it apart.
1: And there's, of course, a third possibility, which is you might, by giving it that charitable interpretation, recognize the truth in some of it. Absolutely right. Good. Back to my point. <laughs> uh,
2: so so uh, um, the, the, the disposition to, to do justice and to be charitable, the, these, are, these are not technical skills, they're virtues. And they're, they're taught by, I think, mainly by example. So professors and uh, CEOs um, can, can teach their people, this is the way we behave. Um, but these are virtues. We don't talk about virtues. We only talk about rights, and we need to learn to talk about virtues. Do we have time, can I I give another example? Yeah, of course. Okay, so here's an example of of why virtue is important, and why we need to talk about it. Um, When was it, was it five years ago, when uh, the um, Islamic terrorists burst into the offices offices of Charlie Hebdo in Paris and slaughtered the people? 2015 thereabouts. It was in January, I think, um, and 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 this is because Charlie Hebdo had published um,
0: cartoons, uh, cartoons of, of, yeah, yeah.
2: of Prophet Muhammad, and I think one of them had you know had Muhammad with a turban and a bomb in it. So you know, Islam equals terrorism, that kind of thing. And and the, the murders were were, were terrible. Let me be clear: completely unjustified. And in the aftermath of that, you know, a lot of people was, were talking up, you know, freedom of speech. I mean, Charlie Hebdo should have been allowed to do whatever they damn well please. And uh, if they want to publish um, stuff that Muslims find offensive, then let them do it. And my reaction was, well, yes, but um, um, my view is that, that it's, never, it's never right to say something or do something just to be offensive. I mean, if, if there's if there's a truth you want to speak, speak it. If it happens to be offensive, too bad. But it, it's it's the speaking of the truth that's really what's important. Uh, you shouldn't you know getting people upset shouldn't be the point. And um, so my view is, you know, spitting on other people's sacred cows for the sake of seeing them get upset is not something we should do. What did Charlie Hebdo think it was going to achieve in publishing these cartoons? Now, Charlie Hebdo is read by people who, you know, on the of the left who who like iconoclasm, particularly if it's anti-religious. So it would it would please their customers. But in terms of, you know, what's it going to achieve that's worthwhile? It wasn't clear to me there was anything to be achieved, particularly in the context where you know you're going to get get Muslims up, upset. Um, now, now, even if you don't agree with me on that, the, the point is this: having the legal freedom to say something is one thing, and that, that's important. Uh, the question of whether you should use that freedom or not is another question. And um, to use that freedom responsibly, you have to have certain qualities of self-restraint. Uh, you have to have certain qualities of intention. I mean, why am I doing? What am I trying to achieve? Um, and we, we want citizens who are capable of restraining themselves from the temptation we all have just to push in the other person's sensitive spot because we'd like to hurt them and irritate them. We, we know. I enjoy that occasionally. <laughs>
0: uh,
2: but, you know, it's, it's, it doesn't really help, folks. Um, but we, we need citizens who are capable of that self-restraint. And that's a matter of virtue, not a matter of rights. And, and we need training in that. We need institutions... And heroes, and parents, who who train us in those virtues. So I'd say, in response to your question, we need to talk about virtue more. Now, let let me be clear. I think all the qualities I mentioned, I don't need to explain to them what they are or why they're good. You you recognize them. So we we all recognize these qualities are important, but we don't name them. Uh, They're not skills. They're virtues, and I think the fact we don't talk about them means we're not as self-conscious about cultivating them. So it's not as if they're absent, but we're kind of tongue-tied, and we need to stop being tongue-tied about virtue, I think.
1: So it sounds to me, Nigel, what you're really talking about there is morality, as is your job and your want to talk about. Uh, And essentially what I'm hearing is, for a healthy society, it's not enough for us just to have laws and to prosecute our rights under those laws. Mm. We have to have a sense of what is the appropriate thing to do, as well as what is the legal thing to do.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Notice that you use the word appropriate,
1: mm-hmm.
2: not right. Mm-hmm. And, and again, that's something we, we tend to talk about, things being appropriate rather than, or inappropriate rather than right or wrong. So that's that's part of the symptom of our kind of nervousness about talking about moral things or virtues or duties. But but just to, to get to your to your point, um, yeah, the, 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 the problem with Depending more and more on law to keep us in order, and I, I do think we're doing this uh, more and more, uh, is um, uh, partly that um, if the police are going to keep us in, in 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 order, then they have to become ever more intrusive, um, and that means that our failure to discipline ourselves, our need for the law to discipline us, means an ever growing. State intrusiveness, which is is not a good idea at all. Um, so I, I do think that um, um, civil society uh, fostering moral virtues of self-restraint, of justice, of charity, humility, uh, is is enormously important. And and the state can't do that. I mean, maybe it can through uh, national curricula or whatever. But in the end, it's these things are taught not by books or Uh, In classrooms, they're taught by examples Maybe they are taught taught in classrooms by the example of the teacher, but it's the example that is is attractive an honest courageous just charitable person is attractive and and kids and uh, employees see that and I think respond to it, so We need to be be, uh, doing that more deliberately and in order to be more deliberate about it We need to be willing to talk about it, but at the moment Whereas we, we talk very freely about rights, we find it very difficult to talk about virtues uh, for reasons. I, mean, I, th- I think historically we could find reasons for that. Uh, and and as I may have said earlier, um, you know, we, we, we think that because we're a plural society, we've got you know we've got conservatives and 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 left wingers, we've got Muslims and Jews and Christians, we've got atheists. Because we're a plural society, we can't agree on moral things. And my view on that—you know—we we may not agree about abortion or about um, about going to war in Iraq. Lots of things we don't agree about, but there are many things we do agree about, and we, we, we all recognise what's necessary for um, uh, comfortable, peaceful, um, uh, uh, non-conflictual social life. And, we, we, you know, uh, and when I talk about these virtues to you. You don't need me to explain what, what they are or, or why they're valuable. So I think, in fact, we agree with a whole lot more. We just think we don't because so we just don't talk about it. And I think we do need to talk about it. So um, let's talk more about virtue.
1: Sounds great. Nigel, thank you so much for coming on the show. We really appreciate it. I've enjoyed it. And I hope you've enjoyed it at home as well. Uh, and we'll see you very soon with another brilliant episode or a live stream, which are always at 7 p.m. UK time. Thank you very
0: much and see you soon, guys.